other here's your people. And, and as I observe and listen to people connecting and laughing, and uh, I'm just so aware of the, the love that does exist within this community and between so many of these people, God, and I pray that that would increase, that we really would be a community that learns how to love each other well in ways big and small. And God, that we would also be people that uh, are given your heart to love those outside of these walls, those we come into contact with, family, friends, co-workers, uh, as we move through the week, God, may you use this message powerfully to kind of maybe bring us back to first things and to challenge each of us, myself included, to open our eyes to where we're uh, blind, open our ears to where we're deaf, and bring to life that which is dormant or asleep within us, in it, within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Today's encounter, as we've been learning, comes in the final week of Jesus' uh, uh, life uh, pre-cross. He's been asked a series of questions, which, which we've looked at over the preceding weeks, and this is the last one. After this, no one asks him any more questions. In verse 28, we're introduced to the a group who asks Jesus this question. And depending on the Bible translation you have, it'll either say teachers of the law or scribes. Um, I think it's uh, not, maybe not critical, but it's interesting and helpful to understand who the scribes were because that maybe gives you a greater sense of why they're asking Jesus this question and the particular expertise they're bringing to the table through which to evaluate his answer. So I've got a short little video. It's not the best quality uh, in terms of resolution, but it'll, it'll get the job done. So let's play that.
So these are scribes that are asking this question to Jesus. These are people who are experts in the most holistic and robust sense of the word. They are in God's word in a way that few of us could even imagine. And they're asking him, of all the commandments, which is the greatest? That's important. Traditionally, the scribes spoke of 613 commands. When you count them all up, there's 365 negative commands, commands of negation, thou shalt not. And there's 248 uh, commands that are framed in the positive, you shall. And all of these commands are binding, obviously. They're God's laws for his people. But the scribes and all Jewish theologians did presume some level of uh, difference as it relates to the weightiness of commands. Rabbis would often have debates about which commands were the weightiest, the most dense, the most important, because they didn't see God's laws as flat, as if all the commands are kind of unequal bearing. There, the law of God is kind of like a mountain, and there is a summit, and there's a peak. The law of God is, does climax in a certain command, and it's through that command that all the other commands cohere and make sense. And so the discussion was, what is that command? What is that view from the summit that helps us to kind of make short work of all these commands and say, oh, that's the heart of it? That's what they're asking Jesus. How does Jesus interpret these commandments? Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. As I said a few weeks ago, Jesus grounds what he's about to say in the Jewish Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, or the Lord is one. Love this God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Now, obviously, we talk a lot about that here. If you spend any time in Christian church culture, you're going to hear that all the time. The danger when things get repeated or emphasized is they can go in one ear or out the other and you can kind of hand wave it. Yeah, I totally get that. But I want to just pause for a moment and have you ask yourself, what, what do you think it means to love the Lord your God? What did it mean to these people? How would someone in the first century hearing Jesus say, this is the most important command? What would they have heard when he says, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength? One definition that I came across this week that I think is very, very helpful is that the love that this scripture speaks to is a volitional commitment to God. Stop there for a second. Volitional, it's a big word. It means from the will, from the center of our intentionality. It's not something that happens kind of accidentally. It is a focus, directed, intentional commitment to God that is three things. It's personal, it's comprehensive, and it's wholehearted. And we get that by just breaking down how Jesus moves us through this command. The preposition with in the Greek, love the Lord your God with, is actually uh, ex in the, in the Greek, which means out of. It's from, uh, we get exit, you go out of the room. You are to love the Lord your God out of, from a place, from a source, with all, which is the word for the whole of, completely, not partially, 
your, and the your there is singular. This is something only you can do. Other people can't love God for you. You can't ride on the coattails of other people loving God. You can't show up on Sunday and say, look at all these other people who love Jesus. That's great. We're loving Jesus. If you're not actually engaging in worship and following Jesus through the week. Out of this space, you are to love God. You are to love God. It's on you. You have to choose it. It can't be chosen for you. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in a first century context, those would have been understood the heart as the center place of will and decision-making. The soul is your self-conscious life, your interiority. The mind is your thought capacity, your worldview, how you understand and perceive things and make sense of things. And then strength is your bodily powers. And that's just really a way for Jesus to say, there is not an area of your life that this command and this calling to love God doesn't touch. There's nothing dualistic about this vision, meaning we can say, well, yeah, I kind of see life as split into spiritual and unspiritual things or sacred and secular things. And these are the areas where we definitely honor God. But it's kind of a different set of rules over here and we kind of just adapt to whatever culture says is it works. This is comprehensive. Every area of our life is a sphere through which we are called to express love for God and love for neighbor. So, Love is a volitional commitment to God that it's personal, it's comprehensive, and it's wholehearted. Jesus says that is the most important command. But then he very quickly says the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Someone asked Jesus for one command, but he gives them two. Because as we see in Jesus' life and teaching and ministry, these two are almost like two sides of the same coin. You can't really talk about one without the other. Because the second command gives shape to the first. It ha- it's, a, it's an interpretational grid through which we can evaluate whether or not we're faithfully loving God. And so there's this fusion between Deuteronomy 6, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Leviticus 19, where God says to his people, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says these two commands fuse together. This is the apex of the mountain. This is, from, from this vantage point, we understand what it means to commit ourselves to what matters most. If you're going to put your eggs in one basket, if you're going to p- put in all your chips in one emphasis, put it in this one. Because every other command hangs on these ones. Every other command only makes sense in relation to love God personally, comprehensively, wholeheartedly, and then extend that love into those around you. Well said, teacher. The scribe's in total agreement. The scribe who has been in the text, copying the text for who knows how long, maybe decades. He says, well said, teacher. You're right in saying that God, uh, that there, that God is one and there is no other but him and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So question is posed of Jesus. And it's to evaluate Jesus, right? The scribes are trying to figure out how he would understand 
and how he would summarize God's commands. But by the end of the conversation, you realize Jesus has been evaluating the scribe. And I think that's an important lesson for us. We might always come and want to put Jesus under the microscope, but Jesus is always in judgment and evaluation on us. We don't really do that to Jesus. We, we always find by the end of the conversation, Jesus is turning things back on us. You are not far from the kingdom of God, scribe. The kingdom is available to the scribe. The scribe, scribe knows this command. He's in alignment with Jesus in terms of core theology. And what Jesus exactly means by you're not far from the kingdom of God, we're not sure. But probably two things we can at least say. He's not far from the kingdom of God in the sense that he knows, in a sense, the right answer. But whether or not he's living into that is another thing, right? You can know that this is the right answer. Whether or not you're living into it and faithfully uh, f- following that, those principles in your life is, is one thing. But also there's a, the larger sense in which Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is not far from you, meaning you understand to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbors yourself. But if you've been listening to my message, you'll understand that the kingdom is breaking forth in and through me. So these commands ultimately have their fulfillment in me. So you're really close, but to fully embrace these truths and to live out this great commandment will necessitate you coming to me, receiving forgiveness from me, receiving new life and new power, and in a sense, new marching orders of how to be God's people in the world. Three reflections on this commandment of Jesus. What Jesus would say is the heaviest commandment. The first reflection I have is that love has a sequence. If you talk with people who consider themselves spiritual and open to spiritual truths, you'll often hear some articulation of the idea that all religions essentially teach the same thing, that we should love one another and be kind to one another. Um, And we can debate whether or not all religions teach that, because I don't think all religions do. But even if we were to give a little bit of line to that idea... One of the things we see Jesus doing here is actually setting out a sequence of love. The central message of Jesus is not love other people. It is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in the secondary movement, love your neighbor as yourself. And that sequence is really, really important. Because love for other people finds its truest expression only on the basis of a prior love from God. If you think of, see, if love has a source, then love has to have a sequence. And what I mean by that is, if God is ultimately the source of love, then that center of love has to define what love looks like when you get on the circumference of that circle with people and different things. You don't start on the circumference. You don't live your life out of the circumference trying to figure out and define what love is. You have to go to the source and let the source define what love is. And then from that source, you carry that love into the circumference. There's a lot of people, and maybe a lot of Christians, there's been times in my life where I've been kind of circling around the circumference, but I haven't gone to the center of love. I haven't gone to the source. I haven't been letting God, and particularly Jesus, define what love looks like. And that's a problem. 
Because if we either omit God from the equation, most important thing in life, just love other people, be kind. Or we minimize our need for God. Like we can kind of love people and if we get to God, that's fine. But we don't actually have to ground our love and our life in God and out of that flow. Like as long as you're kind of just pulling God in every once in a while. If, if we don't have God's love and aren't receiving that in a personal way, and that's, the love that, that's, that's not the love that we're living out of, then what you will find in your Christian life is that you will get more tired, more burnt out, more fatigued, because all you're trying to do is willpower yourself to loving people. All you're trying to do, all you can do ultimately is trying to drum up more love from within you and then bring it into other people's lives. And I was thinking about that this week, and I'm a I'm a very practical person, and I'm a person who doesn't like to sit still, and so it's hard for me to take times where I'm allowing God to refresh me and going into that source of love. And there's a massive correlation between when I neglect those disciplines of personal renewal and sitting and being formed by God's love and my ability to love my neighbors around me well, whether it's my wife, my children, co-workers, the community. And it is exhausting to try and be a Christian simply relying on your own willpower, simply getting out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love people today. I'm going to really do it. I'm super focused. I, I'm, I'm hyping myself up. That will last for a season, usually a very short season. But if we want a life of sustained love, we have to be grounding our lives in the source of love. The sequence has to be God and learning what it means to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to receive that love from God so that our love is reshaped by his love and it moves through us. We become conduits. We don't have to work up a river from within us. Jesus gives us a spring of, of, you know, if you're trying to drum up love from within us is so exhausting and made so much easier when we're simply drinking from a larger fount of love and then passing it on. And I, and I know that for some people here, they're going to hear that and they're going to say, that sounds really airy-fairy and I don't know what that means. Let me break down what that means. I mean, every month I talk about a heart, soul, mind, and strength discipleship plan. I don't know how many people follow through on that. Um, I do that to continually put myself in a position where I have to go to God and say, God, how are you challenging me to grow in receiving from you, learning how to love you through relationships and through my interior spaces and worship and prayer and understanding of the Bible and, and practically serving and giving to people. I put those things, that kind of quadrant, heart, soul, mind, and strength in front of me because I don't want to just get up and try and willpower my way through kingdom life. That's not the way it was designed to be. And so every month I'm trying to be attentive to what are the areas of my life where I need God to pour in love, to teach and show me certain things. And I'm just experimenting with different books, disciplines, ideas, whatever it is, prayers, so that my spiritual walk with Christ remains wholehearted and personal and comprehensive and that I'm not trying to just uh, power through another month. I'm drinking from a fount of love and then I'm refreshed to bring that love into my relationships. 
And so do you have a heart, soul, mind, and strength plan? You don't have to use my model. I don't care what you use. But again, going to the source of love is going to demand some level of intentionality. It's not going to just happen. It's a volitional commitment. Loving God is a decision that we make every day to structure our lives so that we're living from the source of love. Number two, love has a shape. And I wanted to say this because whenever pastors talk about love and loving God and loving other people, and there's a word in the New Testament that's used, disciple. We talk about discipleship. Discipleship to me is just the process of learning how to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love your neighbor as yourself. That is as simple a way as I can say, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Not just a a, a Christian, someone who doesn't just show up to church, but someone who's seeking to follow Christ. It's someone who's trying to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbors as themselves. But one of the things I don't like when pastors talk about this, or when uh, some church leaders talk about this, is they talk about it as if there's a very particular expression of that that's right. And if you cohere to that expression, and what I, um, what I notice is often the pattern that the pastor is laying out of this is what loving God and loving your neighbor looks like, that tends to correlate pretty strongly to the pastor's own spiritual makeup and psychological dynamics, right? It might be well-intended, but it, you know, there was a time in my life where I was discipling students, and God had to show me that discipling students doesn't mean helping them to become little Jeff Strongs, right? I have a certain expression and way of loving God and loving other people that's maybe good and helpful and illuminating. They can learn from it, but they have their own way. And I think this is really, really important to understand that discipleship has its own shape. And when Jesus says, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, in a lot of ways, that's a really risky command to throw out there because it's kind of vague. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love God with all of these things? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What are the boundaries of that love? This is a command that forces us in the deep waters. And so the question that arises as we seek to love God and to love our neighbors, that every Christian should be asking is, how do I follow Christ? How do I follow Christ? Because we are all shaped differently. If you're familiar with Saddleback Church, they have this acronym called SHAPE, which is a, I think, a really helpful and short way of just saying, we're all called to love God and love our neighbors. But how we're going to do that is going to take on a particular shape because God has shaped us differently. We all have different spiritual gifts and different hearts, different abilities, different personalities, different experiences in life. And all of those God has used to shape Jeff in a way that's distinct from Greg, from Jeff, from Daryl, And my role as a pastor is not to say you will be loving God faithfully and serving your neighbor well when you are shaped like me and when you're doing ministry like me. My role is to say we should be pursuing Christ, becoming aware of who we are shaped to be, and then living and learning to love, living and loving out of our shape. There's a lot of people here this morning. God's strategy is not that we all modify our behavior, modify the patterns of our life such that we have a particular expression, a certain mold that we fit in that we say, oh, that is discipleship. That's honoring to God. God's design is that he's 
put us in different places with different experiences. He's wired us differently. And then he sends us out into the world because there are people that you can reach and love for Jesus that I cannot. And so if you're trying to be more like me in a mechanical sense, or I'm trying to be more like you, we've gotten off track. So we come to the question of how do I follow Christ? And I would say it like this. For every Christian, the follow Christ part of that question is normative, meaning everybody who calls on the name of Jesus should be seriously digging into what does it look like for me to follow, or sorry, how, how do I follow Christ? This is, not, um, this is not a hobby. I want to learn to follow Christ faithfully. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to let the scriptures lead me uh, into that truth. And that's the normative call. Everybody who says they're a Christian should be united in that pursuit of Jesus. But the how do I, is that's the individual journey. How, do, how does Jeff follow Christ in this area? How does Doug follow Christ in this area? How does Brian follow Christ in this area? That's where there's going to be distinctives, and thank God for them, because that's how God loves the world. There's no mold. The only mold of the Christian life is that there is no mold. We're all called to grow into Christ-likeness, but the expression that that takes will be different, because when Jesus says in the singular, love the Lord your God, that is a personal command that needs the input of other people. But that's why being a Christian is so fascinating and so exciting because we're all on the same mission together, but we're not doing the mission in the same way. And I don't have to compare myself to other people. I can say, if I learn to follow Jesus, he's going to bring the things in me that glorify God to life. And he's going to bring the things in me that are corrupted and warped by sin. He's going to put those things to death. And as I move through life, if I'm attending to his spirit and his word, I'm going, to, I'm going to become more and more my truest self in him. And there's going to be overlap with other Christians. In that, we're going to be following Christ. And there will be some patterns that will hold up. That will, We are going to be emphasizing things like kindness and charity and generosity and forgiveness and, and love for our enemies. But there's going to be particularities in terms of the kinds of things that we're called into, the kinds of mission fields, how we're going to love in certain circumstances that are unique. And I think that's awesome. And lastly, the third reflection is that love has a story. When they ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is, he grounds the commandment in the Shema. He grounds it in the Jewish story, the story of a good creator God who creates the world, wants his world to live in shalom. We talked about this on Thursday night, that, that, uh, that God wants his people to live in in, in a state of Shambhala, of bliss. Humans rejected that notion. Oh, by the way, I need to pause here uh, and say I am so super proud of the people from uh, our church who came on Thursday night to, uh, to the Jesus Buddha quest, quest for Shambhala presentation. It's about 25 people here. I'm guesstimating half were not connected to this church, and I, I don't think any other church. Uh, and for them to come into these doors, into a church context, not exactly knowing what was happening is a huge risk on their, their part. And I think we had a great discussion. And um, there's a lot of vulnerability. But I was really proud of people in our church. P part of the risk that I take in opening up to Q&A is um, you don't know where things are going to go. You're, I mean, you're completely letting go of control. And to 
observe how people in our church were very slow to speak and very quick to listen. It was super encouraging. I mean, that was really, really encouraging. That night was not advertised as an evangelistic event. It was a discussion exploring two different paths to Shambhala. And there was a lot of vulnerability from people who I don't know the last time they've stepped into a church or if they have at all. But two of those people, when they left, they asked me when the next event is. Yeah. And that was from, and I know a lot of that was, from people in this church sharing their own journey and their own walk with Christ, but doing it in a way that was respectful, that wasn't dismissive of other people. There was lots of ideas being bandied about that were all over the, all over the grid and certainly way outside the, the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. But it was great for people to be able to hold that space and to say, this isn't the forum for me to stand up and to correct someone because they're coming here to learn and I'm learning from them. And it was really beautiful and it was powerful and it was so so good. So good. So I want to say thank you for that. So back to my third point. Love is a story. Jesus grounds a great commandment in the context of Israel's story, this good creator God who creates this beautiful world. We screw it up, but God doesn't give up on us. He intervenes and keeps trying to redeem, and he creates this covenant with these people through which all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. But have you ever noticed that Jesus... eventually will go beyond this story. We'll go beyond this covenant. We'll go beyond this great commandment. Because the commandment that he's referring to made sense within the primary covenant of Israel, but it has to be amended fairly significantly in a new covenant. What do I mean by that? Everyone's heard of the golden rule. Do unto other people as you would have them do unto you. There are three rules. Everyone kind of collapses everything into the golden rule, but they're helpful to distinguish. There's what some have called the silver rule, which is slightly lower than the golden rule. And the silver rule is this. What you wouldn't want done to you, don't do it to other people. That's what Buddha taught. Buddha taught that which is detestable to you, do not inflict on other people. That's a silver rule, but notice it's simply about negation. Just don't do bad things to other people. The golden rule eclipses that and adds a positive. It's not just don't do bad things to other people or that which is harmful, don't harm other people. It's love other people as you would want to be loved. That's the golden rule. That's, that's the second part of this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus will eventually move to what some authors have called the platinum rule or the diamond rule, which is found in John 13, 34, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. That is raising the stakes. Love your neighbor as you love yourself all kinds of complexities there in terms of what does self-love mean and that, and my love for my neighbor is bounded and limited by my own selfish, sinful heart. The calling of Jesus goes beyond that and says, I'm going to give you a new command. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And now that you've seen the fullness of love expressed in my love to you, now go love other people as I have loved you. That is raising the stakes. 
And so Jesus is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That now becomes the standard through which I seek to love others around me. And now maybe you can appreciate why you will never be able to simply will yourself into loving people better. Because to love people like Jesus, you have to be in communion with Jesus. You have to be connected to that source. And it can't be something casual. It can't be, yeah, there's a few times a year I really get serious with God and it kind of fills my tank and then I just empty it out for the rest of the time. It is, I need to figure out a way to be connecting with the source of life every day so that I'm living out of this love that isn't defined by my small, predominantly self-centered definition of love, but it's defined by Jesus' definition and expression of love. How has Jesus loved me? That's the question that should be rumbling through our heads and hearts as we go into the world seeking to love other people. And in order to know that, you've got to just be constantly reflecting on the gospel. You just got to be coming back to it again and again and again. This gospel of manger, cross, crown, these three pivotal movements, incarnation, atonement, resurrection. We have a world that is starving for genuine and transformative, wholehearted, comprehensive, personal experience of love that is, goes way beyond sentimentality and leads to transformed relationships and transformed uh, civic and political realities. But I do not believe that vision can be, contain, can be um, attained outside of being connected to the source of love. And so we have to dwell on this gospel, this God who reveals himself fully in Jesus Christ. We have to reflect on the incarnation, the fact that God's love is a sacrificial love that comes close and exposes itself to the vulnerability and brokenness of the world. It's a love that's willing to get its hands dirty. That this is a, a God's love is a compassionate love that we see on the cross that is willing, willing to absorb loss and absorb pain and absorb sin for the sake of other people, even one's enemies. And in the resurrection, we see a conquering love that brings to life that which is dead. So my prayer for us this morning is let's not settle for a truncated, small, limited definition of a lesser love. Because there are lots of definitions of love that are out there, but there is only one Jesus. And so let's go to him in prayer and ask that his love would be the ground and the source and the fountain out of which we live. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm aware of your response to this scribe. You are not far from the kingdom of God. I understand. I can get up here as a preacher. I can say these words, and I can get off the stage and not live into what I just said. And we can all hear these words, and nod in agreement and walk out these doors and not live into what, uh, not live into these truths. God, would you save us from that? Would even today, as we spend time alone with you, praying, as we connect with people at Cake in the Lake or whatever we're doing, would you just begin to do a work in us so that this week we begin 
re-engaging with the source of love, that we would reflect deeply on the gospel and how it offers new hope for us, that you would refresh us, those Christians who have been will, trying to willpower their uh, way through the kingdom of God, where they lay down those burdens, God, would you refresh us and transform us by your love? And would you show us, open ways for us in all the unique ways that only we as individuals can do to, to bring that love to bear on those that you bring us into contact with this week. Help us to be witnesses to your great grace and glory, God. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray and ask these things because it's only in and through him that it's even possible. Amen.